Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Hoosier Band podcast. Uh, we have two great guests today from the Billy Joel Band. One of my favorite drummers of all time, Mr. Liberty DeVito. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And from Sirius XM Radio, comedian Joe Curry. Hey, how's it going? Nice to be a very good company with Liberty DeVito. Very big fan, sir. Um, I'm expected to laugh a lot today. Good. Well, oh, don't don't with the, with us three well, assholes. Uh, believe me. Yeah, don't say you're far too high. <laughs> and everybody, you guys know the wonderful, good-looking, dim-witted Sean Morton. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll go guys. with good-looking, not dim-witted. We'll be we'll be nice. That's it. He's he's not dim witted, and he's good. He's um, I I love Sean. He's he's my favorite mm -hmm. guy. But but let's get right into this, man. Let's let's talk a little bit of music, Liberty. How yes, are you, sir? I'm fine. I mean, uh, you know, it's great to be here, and like I always say, it's great to be anywhere in this pandemic. You know, oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So my first question to you is, um, what got you into music? Like, you know, you're a kid in Long Island, you know, some kids gravitate towards sports, you know, you gravitated towards music. What got you into music? I always loved music. Uh, but when I went- At what school, age? What age would, oh, would you- I was mowing lawns at eight years old and going to the record store and buying 45s. Do you remember what you used to buy? I, the first record I ever bought was the, uh, the Book of Love by the Monotones. Hmm. The record I ever bought, yeah. and. Um, I continued to buy records. I loved Dion, you know, it was like one of my favorite uh, singers. Uh, the Orlon from Philadelphia, loved loved their sound. But um, it wasn't until I got in eighth grade and um, I, I noticed that all the girls like the sports guys. So I tried to play sports, but I just sucked at it. You know, I just I couldn't do it. So um, uh, music, the Beatles, of course, were on the, the Ed Sullivan show. And um, that was it for me. I saw all these girls screaming for them, and I said, that's what I want to do, man. I want to make a million girls scream. The nice. Beatles were your first influence. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, you know, my dad bought me drums uh, because a cousin of mine was selling them. And um, I asked him later on in life, why did you buy me a, a drum set? He said, because they didn't make Prozac when you were a kid. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you're you're a little kid. Your dad brings you drums. Did you have to like? Because I I played the drums uh, as well in high school, and I remember yep. I had to go for drum lessons. Did you take lessons, or was it something that just kind of came to you? No, I I, uh, I went for lessons in the sixth grade. I um, went and joined the school band, and I couldn't do the buzz roll in the Star Spangled Banner, so uh, the the teacher put me on the bass drum. Boring. So, um, you know, uh, that was it. And then when I saw the Beatles, it, it like was like, I forgot the buzz roll. I wanted to do that. You know, I want to tour the world with my friends. And you practiced every day? Yeah, I practiced the records. Records became my books. And um, so I'm self-taught, you know. Uh, but yeah, I used to play to those Beatles records and all the other records that I loved. You know, Easier Said Than Done by the Essex had a great drum fill in it. It just went, digga, digga, digga. Got that down, it was great. I saw her standing there, it was too fast in the beginning. I couldn't play that, it was too fast. But you know, you build up to it. And do you remember like when you're, so you're sixth grade, you're starting, uh, you know, you're playing, you're practicing all the time. When did you form your first band? Oh, it was, it was right the day after the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> day after. You know, I talk about it in a book, how a friend of mine, I, I, I didn't even know him from high school. 
from uh, junior high school, walked in the backyard of a friend's where I was hanging out that day, and he had a trench coat on. He was wearing all black. He had his hair parted on the side like Paul McCartney did. And I said, hey, you want to be in a band? And he said, I don't even play anything. I said, I don't care. You look like Paul McCartney. Come on. <laughs> and he went and a bass guitar. <laughs> You'll learn. Yeah. Yeah. What was that? Do you remember your first couple of songs? Do you remember the first set? Well, we did instrumentals. Uh, first thing was instrumentals. We did a lot of adventure stuff. You know, uh, Walk Don't Run, Perfidia, you know, Diamond Head, stuff like that. And it was cool. But then when they, we wanted to play a school dance, they said we needed to get a singer. So there was this guy who was uh, an upperclassman, and we, we kind of bribed him to sing with us. And it was cool. But then he didn't want to hang around with us anymore because, you know, he was older than we were. And we were only like, uh, what, 14, maybe? You know, he was a, a senior in high school already. So that's And you played throughout high school and, you know, you wind up, you know, it's probably pretty cool because you're meeting girls and everything. So do you now, you wind up, you're getting good because you're practicing all the time. Do you remember the first pro gig you got paid for? Oh, yeah. Well, the first band that I was in, um, the, the guy that came into the backyard, right? His father was the president of the Teamsters Union in, in um, New York, you know, the, uh, the truck drivers. Um, and um, he used to uh, make us play at the, their uh, parties when they would have a party. So we had kind of a captive audience because, you know, the Teamsters Union was uh, kind of this way. You know, yeah, the na- nice Jewish <laughs> fellow, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we had a captive audience, and we used to pass the hat. You know, <laughs> actually, actually, the president of the team said, "You just walk around with the hat." Hey, come on, the kids are trying to make some money. <laughs> yeah. I think as 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 performers, I think we all kind of remember that. Joe, do you remember the first gig you got paid for as a comedian? Um, yeah, um, yeah, I was uh, doing an an MC spot. <clears throat> you know, at one of the local clubs. And, and the funny thing is, it's like you get, you, it's like you're doing what you like and you're getting no, paid I'm sorry, for but it. when you say local, you're in Long Island? Yeah, Long Island, Long okay. Island, yeah. Long Island. So, yeah, you're doing what you love and you're getting paid for it, you know? And it's, I love doing stand-up so much. Don't get me wrong, you got to cover the overhead. But, you know, the money is secondary. I, you know, I think everybody might agree, like when you're starting out and the way the money's secondary just to, to doing it. I also, I also play in three bands myself. And, you know, sometimes you go out, you make little money, but just to go out and do one of your original songs is ju- it's just an amazing thing, you know? You know, it's funny you say that because I always say to kids when they say, you know, I, I just want to make a, you know, enough money to be able to eat. I say, don't say that. You want to no. make money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're limiting yourself. Don't do that. Yeah. I, I always sure. say... I always say, if you're going to make money at night, just go work for UPS. Because if you're going to entertainment, it's going to happen. Not for a while, at least. <laughs> right. I've been doing this with Sean for a little bit of a while. Yeah. I don't know, Sean. What was the first time you ever got paid for something? Do you remember? Uh, I my path was very different. So I was like on the road within like six months. So I was like, uh, I was emceeing on the road in about six months. But I got to tell you, I made more money in comedy in the first two years that I was doing it than I did in ten years in a band. Oh, wow which was amazing because all I'm basically saying is we didn't make a goddamn penny in a band in 10 years either. It was just horrible. I I, got to tell you though, Liberty, I give you all the credit in the world because, you know, I, I sang in a band, but I, you know, I could, I can screw around on guitar for a little bit and I can, I can play around the bass. But 
when it came to the drums, I would always get annoyed at my drummer and I would throw him out of the sea. I'm like, no, no, this is what I want to do. This is how I want it to go. And I would play all the fills on top. And he's like, asshole, there's no bass drum. And I'm like, oh shit. I can't, if I didn't have to do a bass drum at all, I would be the greatest drummer on the planet. My yeah. fuck. It's the whole brain going to my foot thing. It drives me insane. I can't, I can't even play Highway to Hell. It is the hardest instrument in the world for me to play. You know, I got to tell you, there are drummers that play with no bass drum, and you see them in the Macy's Day Parade every year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Liberty, you're, you're, you're getting good. You're, you're, you know, I guess kind of you make a name for yourself. You're playing in, in, uh, in, in cover bands. How do you wind up meeting Billy Joel and joining the band? Do you have to audition? Did he know of you? Was there the legend of, of Liberty DeVito out in Long Island? <laughs> the legend. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, no, I was continuing to play with bands. You know, I, I, I would go from one band to another, and I was always the youngest guy in the band. So the older guys, they knew more than I did, and they would teach me, you know, so I was learning as I was going along. And then uh, I, when I was 17 years old, I was playing in a band called the New Rock Workshop, which uh, we played in this place called the My House in Plainfield. And another band played there. Uh, and we played together sometimes. It was called the Hassles, and Billy was in the Hassles, but he was known as Billy Joe then. And um, that's the first time I ever saw him. And we used to just pass in the dark and say hi. But I used to watch his band, and I thought, wow, this guy's pretty good, you know? And we both liked the same kind of music. Uh, so um, when I finally um, got to audition for him, it was easy because I was already Doug Stegmeyer. He plays bass. He played bass in a band with me. So I was friends with Doug already. I was hanging out for months with uh, Billy's tour manager. You know, it, it's all about how many drinks you can have in a night, who, who you can hang with and stuff like that. So I had that going for me. So playing the drums, I knew I, could, I was confident in doing that, but I already had the hang, you know. So when, when uh, Billy told his tour manager, to go in the control room. We did it at, at Columbia Records, the audition. Uh, and to give him a thumbs up or a thumbs down, I knew I was going to get a thumbs up because the tour manager kept saying, we got to get you in the band, man. You're a great guy to hang out with. We got to get you in the band. You know, so it was kind of like that. It was more of a, a hang thing than, than a playing thing. You know, so that, that's how it happened. He was already signed by CBS Records at that point then, right? Yeah, he, was, uh, he had two albums out. He had uh, Piano Man and Street Life Serenader out. And, um, we did turnstiles. Uh, when we went in, he was barely hanging on to the, the contract. And turnstiles only sold 50,000 copies because Billy decided to produce it himself. And um, it's got great songs on it, but uh, the record company didn't get behind it. So the Stranger was going to be his last shot on the record uh, on, with the company. And luckily, uh, you know, he got us together and got Phil Ramone involved, the producer. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Uh, that's exactly where I wanted to go with this is The Stranger actually becomes Billy Joel's breakout album and right. you played on that album I wanted to ask you, what, what do you remember about working with legendary producer Phil Ramone? Oh well the first thing I remember is that the first person who was asked to be producer was George Martin uh, you know, Beatles George Martin and uh, he told Billy he wanted to produce him but he wanted to use uh, studio musicians and Billy said uh, you know, love me love my band and turned him down. And then uh, Phil was uh, signed uh, producer to Columbia Records. So 
Phil was was chosen to do the the production, and Phil was great. He came to see us at Carnegie Hall, and he told us uh, after a meeting after the show, he said, "I want you to to be the rock and roll animals that you are when you come into the studio." You know, he he showed us how to con- put that under control. You know, how to control that. But we were still the rock and roll animals that he loved. He didn't want us to play like studio guys. When I first walked in the studio, the engineer couldn't get a sound on me because I was playing so hard. Phil had to do it, you know. So it was, it was a great match. We called him Uncle Phil. We loved him so much. It seems very interesting. You know, you said that for that live feel. I've noticed a lot of bands, when they put out the live album, the live versions sound a lot better than the studio. Cheap Trick comes to mind. Kiss comes to mind. Where those songs Even the Billy live, Joel song. Even that Billy, yeah. the, 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 the Miami uh, song. That's why the lights yeah. go out on Broadway. Much yeah, that, that sound, the, the live version of that tune is phenomenal. That's because there's no, there's no limitation. We're, we're playing live. Uh, we're entertaining. It depends on how many girls are in the front row. You know, so, so uh, yeah, you 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 uh, can go for it. You go for it. It's the energy of the crowd. You're playing off the energy. You know, you get a laugh. You, the next joke is going to be funnier. You know, yeah. it, it's an exchange. It's the same thing. I was I was listening to a, a, a podcast uh, between uh, Bono and and uh, Chris Rock. Did you, did you hear that yet on the YouTube yeah. channel? And Chris Rock says comedy is just like songs you have the verse and then there's the bridge where you get big and you know and then there's a chorus which is huge and you know that you're going to bring the house down with your chorus you know uh it's the same thing with music we do the same thing it's it's i think comedy and and music are very numbers oriented it's the you know it's the rhythm to it um i think that's the similarity hey joe real quick um Mm -hmm. why do people call you plankfoot well, what the reason was when I was a kid, I uh, I was in my buddy's uh, uh, garage. I uh, and I used to wear a Herman Survivors, those big work boots. Had a size thirteen boot, and I'm stamping my foot to this Marshall Tucker song, and dust is coming up on Adam under my foot like a plank. So my buddy goes, "Look at that guy! Holy smokes! We're gonna be calling him Plankfoot." And that's been over forty years, <laughs> so it's been shortened <laughs> to foot. But uh, yeah, that that's that's the story. <laughs> What size were those boots? Uh, size 13. <laughs> I like this, the wow. questions we're asking Liberty. And then, then, then the Joe Curry question is, why is Plankfoot? <laughs> I have a I'm question for I'm very humbled for Liber- to be in the same company as Liberty. So, yeah, I don't mind. I have a, I have a question for Liberty. And I want an honest, true answer. Okay, and I've always okay. wanted to ask somebody this who's been in a band for as many years as you are. Did you ever get the set list and you look at it and you go, not this fucking song again? You know how many times? <laughs> how many times do you think you can play Piano Man? Exactly. Oh, I, I didn't. Even, I don't even like the song. You know, another one, My Life. I don't like My Life either. And yeah, it just like, reminds me of Tom Hanks running down the street and drag. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how do you stay, how do you stay interested? Uh, well, like I said, you, you line the front row with uh, great looking girls. What we actually used to do was Billy would hold the, the first two rows of tickets. And uh, the crew, right before the show started, would go up way in the, in the back and find, like, good-looking girls and say, hey, you want to go down to the front, sit in the front? So they, they, we'd, uh, you know, pack the, the first two rows with uh, great-looking girls. And, um, you know, I, I can still see Billy's face, like, we turn the lights on, and, and all of a sudden he's looking at me going, whoa, you know, <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. 
That's great. Like, yeah, I'm in all night. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys ever prank Billy and just like fill the front row with like maybe Bloods and Crips? Yes. Yeah. Fill the... <laughs> I actually fill it with gay guys. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. That's great. <laughs> Speaking of playing, man, you know, what's it like being a kid from Long Island? and playing Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve, Shea Stadium, Yankee Stadium. Like, you know, and, and when you do that, do you bring a date to that, to something like that? Because that's pretty much like an, a, a panty dropper, right? I mean, the girls are gonna be impressed by that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I, I personally like playing like clubs and small theaters better than playing those kind of places because you only see the first two rows. I can't see past that. Yeah. You know, it's just a lot of people out there. Like, you know, uh, no, it's uh, it, it's really weird. You want to have interaction with the with the audience, and you will in in a club or a, or a theater. You know, just like uh, comedy, you want interaction, just like anything else. You're saying something. You want to be able to see somebody's eyes and how they're reacting in a big place like a like giant stadium. Forget it. You can't see anybody. What was yeah. your favorite era of uh, being in the band? Oh, I'd have to say uh, probably the the beginning. You know, like yeah. Return of Stranger, Fifty Second Street. Okay. Then, then when it got, then it got started to get crazy. You know, then oh, at I the end, imagine. like it was like you know everybody was going their own way. Billy would go what was separately with his tour manager, and you know the band would be together. That started to be like ah. I know, I know for us, you know, Joe, uh, Sean, like, I, I love performing in Manhattan, uh, going down uh, McDougal Street and, you know, the energy of, of that. It, it almost feels like, like you're at Mardi Gras, like, yeah. all the time. And, and, you know, and, like, you see people online waiting to get into the club and you know that they're waiting online to, you know, to watch you perform. And that's like a, a club in, like, a small club in New York City, like, like a Greenwich Village comedy club or something like that. But can you imagine you're Going to John, like I worked on on those shows, uh, Liberty, when uh, you guys toured with Elton John, okay, yeah. and I mean, over a hundred thousand people, and you're driving up in your in your in your van, you know, and you get out, and that energy, like, what's that got to feel to you? Like, that's got to be massive. Are you overwhelmed? I guess. Are you nervous? Like, how do you feel on something like that? Well, I'm not nervous because you know it's it's the same drum set. Just you know, like it's like getting in a space capsule. The, 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 you know, you're excited that you're doing it, but it's that same capsule you've been practicing on all that all that time. But like walking in, I, I played the the um, the the bitter end, the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, 2000s. I played uh, every time. Going into the bitter end and seeing it crowded. And just being able to look at the people and stand next to the people that are going to be watching you play is more exciting to me than going backstage and looking at the uh, cold cut platter in the dressing room. And, you know, um, I like that better. I like the intimacy better than the big place. The big place was to make money. Makes sense. Um, mm. how, how about in 1987? Uh, let, let, can you, wait, can, let me say that. Let me, yeah. Big place was so Billy could make money. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. Duly noted. Um, Nineteen eighty-seven, though, man. You, you know, milestone. I guess in all you guys' career, you wind up going to Russia to yeah. uh, perform. Uh, did you know? Can you describe that experience? Was that overwhelming? I mean, did, did that? I mean, get you out of your comfort zone? I mean, 
you know, how, how was that? How you handle that? Listen, we we all went to school, and 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 I know that when I went to school, we had to hide under our desk because the the Soviets were gonna like bomb us, drop bombs on us, like the desk was gonna save our lives. But you know, they thought we thought I thought when I went there that I was gonna meet these three-headed dragons that breathe fire, you know. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, man, we're going behind that wall, that wall that keeps their people in, and they want to keep people out. So they put a wall up, you know, it's like, how paranoid are they? And I'm going there and my name's Liberty. It's like, what am I, crazy, you know? But, you know, when you travel the world, people are people everywhere. They're everywhere, you know? And um, you get to meet them. The, the, the best way to, to find out what people are really like is to sit down and have a meal with somebody, you know? And, and then you find out that nobody, nobody wants a war, you know? They might be pissed off about something that we're doing in, in our country, but they don't want a war. It's like, can't you, you see, like, can't these governments like settle this? Can't they, can't they get together and, and just knock it out on paper? Why do they, you know? I mean, you, you're asking that question in these times right now? Our government's going to settle. We can't settle anything right now. I, have, I don't know about you guys. I have no faith in, in government at any level at this point. I don't, I don't either. And, um, it, it, it's it's really a shame. I mean, because I went to, when I was in the Soviet Union, I, I stood there, I think it was in Leningrad, and I just looked up at the sky and I said, it's the same sky that's over our country. It's the same thing, you mm. know? And uh, it was like, why why are we doing this shit? You know, <laughs> it's crazy. You know, I tell dad, you, that, that that was a, I tell you, and that the song Leningrad is such a beautiful song. You're yeah. you, you almost in tears, you know, by the end of the tune. It was such a beautiful tune you guys did. And that was exactly what it was like. We never knew what friends mm. we had on because we were afraid. We were afraid of everybody, mm. you know. Now I see in museums that pieces of the wall, and I think, wow, I was on the other side of that plane. Mm. You know, I, that's it's funny. That's I did it last uh, night with, yeah. um, with, uh, on the Beatles channel, you know, because uh, Paul McCartney's putting out a box set of uh, Flowers in the Dirt. And, uh, great album, great album, great album. I did a track with him in '86, uh, and it's on that album. Now it's on the, in that. You played, you played on uh, "Flowers in the Dirt." I played on a, a, a track that he recorded at that time. Okay, it's called "Beautiful Night." Actually, Ringo's version got on his album, but I did it too before Ringo did it, and and now he's releasing that in this box set. So, you know, um, I was asked about about what it was like to go to the Soviet Union. <laughs> and the guys were saying like, you guys played back in the USSR there before Paul actually got to play it there. <laughs> you know? That's pretty cool. Hey Joe, do you re you're, um, you're a Long Island guy, mm -hmm. like, like Liberty, yes. and um, we've, Sean and I have talked about this with, with Jersey guests, but you know, the, the music scene back in, in, in the day, like when you were, like the day, like when we were growing right. up. Did you remember like the 80s um, going to places like Hammerheads and going to uh, see uh, bands like Salty Dog or <clears throat> uh, Rat Race Choir? Do you remember that type of thing? Absolutely. I used to hang out. I used to hang out at the Salty Dog <clears throat> on Friday nights. I used to uh, hang out at the OBI and Chevy's on Saturday nights. Uh, my band uh, played at Cheers, Hammerheads. Um, oh God, uh, Neptunes, all, all the club. We would play, we played in a band called Quebec and we had a lead singer that looked just like Steve Perry. This guy, Hugo Valente, looked just like him. And we used to play, we used to have your own night. 
So you would, you know, we had like a steady Tuesday night gigs, you know, and if you, oh, that, wow. those were the days when you weren't working the clubs, you were hanging out of the clubs. It was, it was an amazing time. Uh, a debut night. I remember the debut night um, I played with this band Quebec, which was essentially that journey band at Cheers, 350 people. I knew that's what you would get on a debut night. And it's so sad the way it's gotten up because my, my original band goes out and play plays and we'll open up for national acts we'll open up for regular acts and the club might have 50 people where back in the day it was 450 so it's a shame that's where it is with live you know live original music on the island now you know yeah yeah you're absolutely right about that when i was a kid there was the action house you know everybody used to go to this place in, in oceanside called mm. the action and um i saw groups there. i saw traffic there i saw blue cheer there i saw uh, uh, Chicago played a small stage when it, every band came around and played that place. Yeah, you know, I saw Hendrix at the at the Singer Bowl. Uh, it was Hendrix, uh, uh, Janis Joplin, uh, and Big Brother and a Holding Company, the Chambers Brothers, and one other band. It was insane. It was like eight mm. bucks, you know. But now you're absolutely right. I have a band, the Slim Kings. We do all original material. We can't get arrested. No, can't you can't. But you know, and the thing is, is that. The, uh, I, I also play in, in another cover band, but there's nothing like playing original music. You know, you write it, you rehearse it, and then you go play it and people pl clap. You know, and even, though, even though it's it's tough to get a crowd, I don't think you can get a, a decent gig until you hit Maryland to get a live audience, to tell you the truth. But still, just th that's what keeps my band going, just to write and play original music. You know, if I want to go make money, I'll, I'll join a cover band. But, you know, still, there's nothing like it. It's amazing. So let me yeah, ask you this. You, you, Libby, you write you liberty joe you write a a great original song you okay you go in the studio you, re, you record it it comes out perfect it's a great song how do you get exposure to it you know how how, how do the masses get to hear it in 2020 well today the thing to do is, is to get placements you have to get a, you have to hire a person that takes your material and sends it to tv or movies and stuff like that that that's that's the only way to make money these days. You know, you can't sign a record deal because they want, they, they do the 360 deal where they take everything. They want money, mm -hmm. they want everything because they're not making money anymore. Nobody's, nobody's buying music. Everybody wants it for free. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, well, the, well, the music industry is basically from when you started has basically flip-flopped. It used to be you would make your money off of albums and go out and support and support the album by going on tour. Now, right. You're making nothing really, like you said, on the album, and you have to make your money on the tour, on the merch, that type of stuff. So, which means you're on the road a lot longer, working a lot harder, and probably making less money. Yeah, you know, the, the, there's no um, uh, support from radio anymore. It's, you can't get, because uh, Clear Channel owns like most of the radio stations in the country. Yeah, and them and Liberty. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they're programming everything. You know, uh, I know um, the the radio station in the city, Q104. You know, I'm good friends with everybody there. And they say they sit like a dozen people in a room, play a record, and then they see how these people react to it. And if it's a good reaction, they might play the record. You know, it's a, but it's an oldie. It's a Led Zeppelin tune. What Led Zeppelin tune do you want to hear? People know every Led Zeppelin song, you know? So they'll play How Led can Zeppelin new music get exposure? How can you write a song? It's a great song. And how could people hear it? Like, is, is radio out? And it has to be, everything has to be grassroots now? Well, it costs a lot of money to, to do AAA. AAA is the one underneath the major radio stations, you know. Uh, so you have to send it to AAA. 
Uh, the mailing is like ridiculous. You've got, you find a guy that, that knows all the people at these AAA stations uh, and, uh, and you send it, you see if they start playing it and if somebody else picks it up. But people are afraid to do anything these days. They're afraid of losing their jobs. Not like the old days you used to play. When I was with Billy, you know, if you had a band, you play in a club and, and, and an A&R guy from a record company would come down and go, wow, you guys are great. I want you in my office on Monday. We're going to sign you to a three record deal. You know, uh, people w would take chances like that. Nobody wants to do that anymore. So if you're the Eagles, okay, you're an established band, is it even worth putting out a new album? Because, like, one, who's going to play it? Who's going to hear it? It sounds like the best thing to do, you go out, play greatest hits, give people what they want. You know, uh, as, a, as an artist, it's unfulfilling, I guess. But, uh, you know, as to, to survive, to make money, I guess that's the only way to kind of, like, uh, go out and, and, and do something like that. Well, to be honest with you, if I was in the Eagles, I would have quit a long time ago because I think they suck. But uh, um, <laughs> not my favorite band. That's um, great. But um, uh, yeah. But you played uh, with I, one of the Eagles, didn't you? What? Didn't you play with Don Felder? I did. I did. Okay. But um, he was um, always my favorite member of the Eagles, by the way. Yeah, because he's wounded. <laughs> he's only flying with one wing. He was also a phenomenal guitar player. He really is. He really mm -hmm. is. He was uh, a little, little. I, I would say insecure because of, I guess, the traumatic breakup that they had. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, like Elton John puts albums out all the time. I think it's just it's just self self satisfying for him to do it because that's what he does. Mm -hmm. Billy's putting albums out what twenty years ago now. River of Dreams was his last record he put out. Yeah. He doesn't want to do it. He, he was he was discouraged by the business, and he didn't want to continue to expose himself, you know, his life. So he said, yeah. "Forget." I'll tell you though, from a fan point of view too, like I can I can remember this concert I went to about six years ago. I went to see Iron Maiden, and they had just put out a new album, and I sat there and I watched them play the whole new album, and I'm looking at everybody going, "The fuck are they playing the Trooper?" You know what I mean? Like yeah, and. Yeah. They yeah. play the whole new album and then like they take an encore and play two songs. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. It's like you feel good that, that your favorite bands are still recording and making great music. Right. But you also still want to hear the good, you know, the greatest hits when you go see them in concert as well, too. Yeah. yeah. I, well, what, I, what Maiden will do is they'll go, if they have a new album out, they'll play most of that album. <clears throat> so if you want to hear the hits, you have to go between albums. Like if but you, they if, let you, but Maiden let you know that they're going to play, you know, that album. Yeah, that they, they do. But here's how, here's how stupid I am. I'm saying, ah, they're full of shit. I'm still going to go and watch the show. They ain't going to play the whole album. <laughs> and I go there and I'm scratching my ass after the fifth song. I'm like, all right. Maiden has integrity, man. They're, they're the best. I, that's my, you think you, we've spoke about this. They're, like, they're my favorite band. Let me tell you something. You know, we, we, all the four of us here come from, a place where we always want to change. We want to change. You know, when mm. I was growing up, the, the Beatles in 1967 put out Sgt. Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, and the single Strawberry Fields with um, Penny Lane on the other side. They did that in one year. This, now it takes us a, an act two and a half to three years to make an album. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. People are so drawn to the older stuff. When I was playing with Billy, we had to do Only the Good Die Young all the time. We are still rock and roll to me. 
goes and it, and the end of the show got very boring. You're very boring. Couldn't wait for it to be over. You know, the same set all the time. We tried to do. I saw uh, when we put out Stormfront. I saw the song Extremes when we would start it. The lines to go to the bathroom and or get beer or something. Why? That's a great. Song. That's a great tune. That's a phenomenal now, song. Now it's and a it's great up song. and everything. It, it is, it's, yeah, it's oh, awesome. We're the we're from the general. We're the kind of people that want change. We get sick of the same thing on the radio. But as soon as change comes, we're not ready for it. I got I got a gripe with the whole Stormfront album. I got to tell you, I have a big gripe with this album. You hate it, right? No, I love the album. Here's the thing: I grew up my uncle pushing Billy Joel on me, so I loved Billy for a long time. So like, I'm the only one in my grade who who knows who Billy Joel is. So here comes Stormfront, and I'm in eighth grade. So now we didn't start the fire. It's a gigantic song. So like I, I'm playing it and my teacher says to me, what is that song? Cause she's only hearing every other word. So she listens to it and she goes, you know, Sean, this is a great idea. What we're going to do is I'm going to take this song and I'm going to dissect it. And I'm going to take little bits and pieces out of it. And everybody's going to do a book report on one person that I, or one <laughs> phrase or, or event out of this song. And I'm like, this is great. I'm going to get one of the best ones. You know, I'm thinking like, you know, yeah, Harry Truman or you know what I got? DNBN Foo Falls. That's what I had to write a goddamn book report on. I can't hear that song anymore without thinking of that bitch eighth grade teacher that I had. Weird connection. Speaking of weird, Liberty, were you dancing in the Uptown Girl video? No, no, I wasn't. I was snapping my fingers in, in the uh, Longest Time video, though. That was oh, I love that. That's a great song. Oh. Great 50 styles. But you weren't you know, singing into a wrench or anything? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. Actually, I was on the road with Stevie Nicks when that was happening. That, uh. That's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. You know, besides Billy Joel, I mean, you're playing with some freaking legends, man. Stevie Nicks, Meatloaf, Carly Simon. But the person I want to ask you the most about was Karen Carpenter. You worked with her. Describe that, man. What was that like? And did she play the drums and what did you think of her as a drummer she did play she did play my drum set you know um and i and when i found out that ron tut was the one that, that played on all those carpenter songs you know it wasn't her yeah you studio guys and um she wasn't bad i mean she wasn't bad but i i could see why they didn't use her in the studio but live you know she cut it she was good she was a great girl and she had a great sense of humor i mean you know um uh, the, when when the album finally came out, the New York Times did a review on it, and they called. Uh, they said that Phil Ramone hooked Karen Carpenter up with with a bunch of Billy Joel's hooligans, you know. And um, it, it <laughs> you was guys true. The hooligans. I got she got so pissed at me, you know. The, the Christmas album had just come out by the Carpenters, and I drew all over the front of it, put beards on them and berets and stuff. And she, she got so pissed at me. We worked really hard on this. Look what you did. You just faced the album, you know. It's like whoa <laughs> <laughs> but no man you haven't you haven't lost it at all i mean i remember you as as when i was growing up watching you play and you know you stood out in that band you and i think it was mark rivera and then now you're in a band called the lords of 52nd street Lord and you're still pounding better than ever before the guy who's playing piano the guy who plays sax are amazing well, I Richie Ganada plays sax. He's the one that played on mm. Slaughter for Me, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, all those hits. Well, it makes sense. How does that band come together? And that band is excellent. Mark, Mark 
did never played on it. I mean, I think he played on, I can't even think of what he played on. Richie played on all the big, big, big records that you, you keep hearing over and over again. Um, so uh, that came about, we were inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. And uh, I was still pissed at what happened between me and Billy. So I said, I'm not going, fuck, fuck I'm not going. And um, I, got, I was convinced when I talked to the other guys, they wanted to do it. I said, okay, I'll go. And they said, they want us to play one song. So I sent some other guy to do the sound check. I was so upset about it. I didn't want to go at all. But when I got there and we played. Now why were, I'm sorry, but why were you pissed at Billy? Oh, when we separated, you know, when we, when we parted, it was cold. It was cold cut. Boom. You know, how, did that, uh, how did that happen? How did you guys separate? Well, so it was one of those, uh, she said, he said things where, um, you know, Billy's uh, surrounded by a whole bunch of people all the time. Uh, the band, the crew, uh, the management, uh, everybody, you know, lawyers, everything. And he trusts everybody to do their job. And if somebody comes to him and, and says that, that I said something or I did something, and he doesn't come to me to ask me if it's true or not, I'll never know what it was, what was said by that person. And he'll never know if it was really true or not, or something, because there's a lot of backstabbing going on in the music business. You know, I mean, well, it, you don't see that at all in comedy, though. I mean, there's no backstabbing. <laughs> that never happened. Never, it's, never. It's, it's all kumbaya all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, we totally somebody, get it. Somebody, somebody said something, and it wasn't for 15 years later until I had breakfast with him last February when I said, let's bury the hatchet, because we were going after oh. each other in the press and everything, you know. But, um, uh, so he it, what, what he heard wasn't true after all all those years you know what happened was i should have gone to his house stood in his driveway when he pulled out i should have stopped him and said what's going on what happened what did you hear or what you know what was said i but was told, not enough in oh, the bank the history that you guys have you started out when he really wasn't a superstar or anything so you know, he knows you he wouldn't right. come to you like, as a man, he wouldn't come to you and say, hey, Liberty, man, I heard some shit, you know, clear it up for me. Right, no. It never was done. No, well, yeah, you see, my Italian temper got, up, got the best of me, and I was mm. like, fuck him. He was the same way. He was like, fuck him, you know? So, <laughs> um, so Joe Curry. Yes. <laughs> I, I, like, you know, listen, I don't really know Joe Curry, but I like Joe Curry. Uh, <laughs> and, I've, and I heard you before, man, because... You're good friends with uh, Anthony Cumia of the uh, Opie of the former Opie and Anthony show. Anthony's been my friend, uh, one of my closest friends since 1977. How'd you guys hook up to? You guys had to be friends when you were kids. Uh, yeah, we wound up uh, basically Anthony's brother Joe Cumia uh, came out the summer of 1977. Really good guy. Also and, a musician. Uh, yeah, I got yeah. it. Yeah, okay. Right, right. And, um, I, you know, I was roadieing for the band. He goes, hey, my brother's coming out from uh, California starting school in September, man. I'm going to have him, you know, meet you. So I'm, I, I met up with him and we were cracking jokes within five minutes. And you could just see the brilliance of the guy. And since that day, 1977 till this day now, he's one of my, my closest friends, one of the greatest guys in the world. One of the funniest guys ever in the world because when uh, during during the 80s um i worked at a fence company uh in melville new york and uh i met this guy this kid uh that was working with us adam ferrara and adam was uh and my buddy goes yeah this guy adam is starting with us tomorrow you'll like him he's a funny guy 
Adam and I did nothing but screw around the next day. So I go to Anthony's apartment uh, later that day and I go, we're hanging out at the OBI Friday night. There's this guy you got to meet, Adam. And he goes, we got our friends. I go, dude, he's one of us. And we met and I've been friends with Adam since 1985. This was all before, you know, comedy and stuff like that. So <clears throat> Adam did, uh, Adam goes, I want to see, I want to start doing comedy, you know, after I got out of college. So he went down to Eastside Comedy and he goes, I'm going to do an open mic. And um, <coughs> he does the open mic, does phenomenal, winds up getting a lot of work out of that. I started about a year and a half later, but Anthony just stayed in the house and he didn't do anything. And I knew this brilliant comedy mind was just sitting there. So uh, I, we had a band called Rot Gut that we had uh, in the early 90s and we did parodies and we did uh, a song, uh, gonna electroshock OJ to the uh, walking on the dock of the bay. Opie from BAB, when he had the 19, uh, nighttime attitude, loved the song, invited Anthony's brother Joe and Anthony there. Anthony knew it was his chance, so he poured it on with all his voices and stuff like that, and he wound up being Opie's partner. About six months later, Opie said, I got a gig going to Massachusetts on WAAF. Would you go with me? And Anthony said, yeah, absolutely. And, and the rest was history. And uh, yeah, he's one most brilliant comic minds ever, ever. Wow. How do they break up? Um, what happened was, is that uh, uh, six years ago, uh, they were uh, on, on vacation during the July 4th holiday. And um, Anthony was taking pictures uh, in Broadway. And this, this woman accosted him, you know, and, and, you know, punched him and stuff like that. So Anthony tweeted a bus bunch of nasty stuff. And then Sirius XM heard about it and said, well, we can't have this. And they let him go. Um, if, if it was the next day, he never would have been fired, but, um, he let him go. Cause quite frankly, we were thinking Sirius was looking to cut costs on everything and he let him go. So he was sitting around the house and Keith Maresca, his, uh, his manager was saying, you have the equipment down in the basement. Why don't you start your own network? So in August of, uh, 2014, he started the Anthony Cumia show and, uh, he's been doing very well and, and good for him that he built his own network. Yeah, no, both Sean and I have been on uh, several shows on uh, Compound Media. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're familiar with that. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more uh, about our show, Sean. We, 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 we do a lot, you know, when we don't have a guest, we'll do a bunch of top uh, 10 type of thing, top, top 10 uh, debuts, stuff like that. So the question I want to ask both of you guys and everybody here, sure. Salt of Liberty, give yeah. us your top three drummers. Guys, you know, who you, who you, you know, because we could argue this all the time, but, you know, we're talking to an expert here. Top three drummers. I'm not an expert. You know, uh, I, I see drummers that are phenomenal when I, when I see them playing, uh, you know, do solos and drum clinics and stuff like that. And I, I'm not a soloist. I, I only did one and it was in that movie Hired Done. That's the only time I ever did a drum solo. A phenomenal movie, by the way. Oh, thank you. Loved it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, but um, so... My my drummers, uh, you know, I like like everybody loves Buddy Rich. Everybody's like, oh, Buddy Rich, Buddy Rich, Buddy Rich. Personally, I like Gene Krupa better. You know, I thought he was better. Uh, there's another great jazz drummer, uh, Joe Marillo, who played with um, uh, Dave Brubeck. Fantastic drummer. Uh, as far as rock guys go, I used to love uh, Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker. Those guys, you know, Dino Dinelli from the Rascals. Um, great drummers. You know, so. I mean, you could say that, let, let's put it this way. If your drummer is in his env right environment, he's great. If he's not, 
He's not going to be good. Like you could take Buddy Rich, who everybody says is the greatest drummer in the world, and put him with, uh, you know, compare him to Larry Mullen, who plays at U2, you know. And if you took Larry Mullen and put him with Buddy Rich's big band, he would suck. He'd say, that drummer sucks, man. He's just not doing anything. In the same way, if you put Buddy Rich in U2, you'd say, that guy is overplaying, man. He's terrible, you know. So when you're in your own element, you're great, you know. So when you see uh, Neil Peart, uh, uh, you know, too bad, dude. Yeah. Not right. But uh, he was a great drummer in Rush. But I know for a fact that he tried to do a Buddy Rich Big Band thing and he flopped on his face. Mm. You know, uh, so you, you have to be in that, your right environment. You know, there, there's a lot of great R&B drummers that are unbelievable, but, but can't play rock and roll. You know, it's it's really a, a strange, strange thing how people pick out their favorite drummer. Usually, it's like how fast they play that people when, love. When I look at you and when you would play, I mean, like when you'd watch the bands that you were in, you stand out. And I think you're one of the drummers that have personality. And I kind of like put you with. Do you know Myron? I think it was, uh, Myron Grobrocker. He played yeah, in sure. Pat, yeah, and yeah. Keith Moon guys who like are part of a band, but they have that personality that they stand out. Even Max from uh, E Street Band, you know, right. it's as subtle as he is, he just plays hard, and you know, he he he's an integral part of the band. So that's the way I kind of look at you as a drummer. That's why I kind of think that you're you're a great drummer in that in that regard. I would I would agree. What? I would agree. You have that that you know cachet. You know, the same yes. with Max Weinberg. You know, you're that you know that that. Be backbeat that that star rhythm section right yeah. well one of my dear friends nico mcbrain you can't even see him behind the set but you him. hear great drumming going on you know so there's i have the the visual you know i make it look like i'm having fun and and um make i make it look like it's easy you know that's what people love they they feel like i'm i'm with them you know right joe curry your top three drummers. Yeah, I would say Neil Neil Peart, um, Phil Collins, because Phil Collins wow. has a lot of, you know, you could if you listen to a Genesis song, you could see that a lot of the the rhythm it, it it's 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 very musical. It's, it sounds weird, but very musical. It's not just keeping yeah. time, but it's a very musical thing what he throws in there, you know. And also, it would be I don't know the drummer's name, but I'm just going to state it, state it, the the rhythm section in the Dave Matthews Band. I think is is phenomenal. Uh, his name is Chester. Chester, um, I can't think of it now. What the hell's his name? Sean, you, you're a big uh, Dave Matthews fan, Ben. I, I, you know, I actually do like Dave Matthews. Really? I've seen him a bunch of times in concert, and I will agree that uh, he surprises me. This guy. Yeah, one of the greatest things I ever saw was at Giant Stadium seeing a Dave Matthews concert, and they were playing Ants Marching, and it's that one part where he goes, people in every direction, it comes into the big cymbal crash, and a lightning bolt came like screaming out of the sky right as he hit the, the cymbal wow. crash. <laughs> Never forget that in my entire life. That's so who are wow. your three top uh, drummers? My top three drummers, uh, Carter, Bof Carter Beaufort, is that the guy's name? That's him. He's Carter Beaufort. No, yeah. um, well, I would say number one, because he's like the most animated, uh, like you can't watch him and not lose your mind as, as uh, Charlie Watts from the Stones. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even do that with a straight face. He's still, um, he's still going though. <laughs> still, he really is. Almost that guy, 80. Really is. 
Can we give, Amazing. give Charlie Watts a break? He's almost 80. <laughs> um, I would say uh, Dave Grohl, number one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he can he can play anything. And not even from the Nirvana era. I'm even talking about the Foo Fighters era. And I've seen him fill in for Queens of the Stone Age and, and bands like that. Taylor uh, Hawkins is great, too, from the Foo Fighters. Yeah. Oh, Taylor's yeah. amazing. And he's an amazing yeah. singer, too, which people don't yeah. realize. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's, he has a couple of solo albums out where he sings and plays guitar. It's like uh, oh, kind of surfy California rock. Really good yeah. stuff, too. He's a cool guy, man. I like him. Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite live bands I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, I'm going to go a little more heavy metal with my other one. I'm going to go with a guy named Sal Abrascado. who's in a band called uh, Typo Negative and uh, Life of Agony. It's a very distinct sound, so I, I love that. And I'm going to go with Matt Sorum. From uh, the cult and uh, Guns yeah. and Roses. Oh, yeah, yeah he's awesome. And yeah. Also, throw Sorum into uh, Velvet Revolver. Uh, yes, two, yep. he was in two, the first Velvet. album was outstanding. The second album was great, but that first album, especially in the mix, they had that sub bass in the mix where the low end on that was so great. You know, so good. Duff's always got that groove and that low end plus with Sorum's drum. Amazing album. Through yeah. every tune was a winner yeah. on that album. If I have to pick, if I have to pick three, Sean, I'm going to go with Mickey Dolan's Peter Chris and the Kid from the Partridge Family. Those are going to be um, my uh, top three. Uh, I got, I got uh, old, the first Chris or second Chris. <laughs> no, P Peter Chris. The original Chris. Place. No, the Partridge Family. First Chris or second Chris? Oh no, second Chris. Come oh, on, okay. the first Chris was a hack. <laughs> we know that. The, the second Chris, he, he was awesome. Um, I want to ask Liberty a question. What, Libby, what? what inspired you to write your book? I'm just going to go with that. I, I actually um, w was just writing down my family history. It started with just my family history. Um, uh, you know, uh, my dad uh, passed away probably three years ago at 91 years old. And I got to sit with him and my aunt, a couple of my aunts and ask them what it was like, you know, growing up and what they did and, and the family where, where we came from in Italy. And um, where in Italy are you guys from? Well, half, my fa half of me is from Sicily. Um, a place called Morial, and uh, the other half is uh, from Naples. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I, fi I figure you maybe you going to say Calabria. No, no, but you know okay. that's right across from Sicily. There, that's know. where my family's from. Calabria, Calabria, Calabria and Barry. Yeah, yeah. That's why we have something mm -hmm. in common, Sean. All right. You mm -hmm. can stand in uh, Sicily and in, in Torremino and, and see Calabria. You know, because yeah. it's that close. You know, but um, yeah. So I started to write it as a history of, of my family. And then uh, I started to throw in some, uh, you know, when I got mad at Billy and we were uh, at odds with each other, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm burying this. I'm burying that whole organization. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I wrote a lot of stuff. And, um, but as I got older, you know, I started to look at, at things from a different point of view. Like, why did Billy do what he did? You, mean, you know, I had to look at him like he was, uh, his name is on the marquee. He's writing 14 songs for a new album. Four of them have to be pop hits. He, he plays piano. He sings. He's taking care of road crews. He's take, paying for everything, you know? And I'm the drummer in the band getting pissed off that we're going out in April instead of March, you know? Uh, so, um, so I kind of like rounded out the rough edges in, in the book, you know? And I didn't want it to be one of those, like some of these guys, they write the books about, oh, I had sex with, with uh, 12 chickens and, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know. That would have been, that would have been a good book too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like to leave it like read between the lines, you know. So, um, yeah. So 
that, that's what happened. It took 15 years to actually put it together. Oh. I sent it to a, publisher, a bunch of publishers, and, and one came back and said, we love this kind of story. And then when I told Billy, it wasn't bad. I don't throw anybody under the bus. He, he kind of said, like, okay, I'll write you forward, yeah. Yeah, and the uh, that's cool. He wrote the forward. Great. And the, book, and the book is called Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And, I can't wait, I can't wait for this life. podcast to get gigantic so I can write a tell-all book about Jeff. Because I hate that <laughs> son of a bitch. Can I just tell you? Oh. Yeah. So it's a, it's a story about my life and, you know, the many roads that I took. There's so many people that, that say, well, I went to Berkeley and, you know, that's how I'm going to make it. I'm going to go to Berkeley School. No, 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 no. I played clubs that were dumps and slept upstairs and, and you know, did drugs and watched, watched a, a dry cleaning bag burning, dripping down into a pot, you know. And I went down to dark roads, too, you know, and I was fortunate to be able to get out. Some of people, some guys I know never got out of those dark roads, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's what this book is really about, my journey of how these immigrants came from Italy and then uh, two, two generations later, one of them is playing with one of the biggest single artists in the world. How did that happen, you know? How could people get the book? Um, you know, do you have a website or no. uh, it, you, just uh, Amazon? Amazon, amazon.com, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, we had them on uh, Hudson Music, the publishers. Um, I had to sign 2,000 of them and they went like hotcakes. Mm. Yeah, they were gone. That's so great, it's doing really well, I'm surprised. Well, it's a great story. Because guys like you, because of guys like you that have me on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll definitely sell seven more books because of this podcast. I'll tell you that right That's now. That's right, and, and we're going to buy two each. So. <laughs> hey, hey, you're in there, like with the Beatle Channel. You're in there with Rolling Stone online. <laughs> so, I, I have a funny uh, buddy, a good friend of mine, Dennis, who is a major fan of yours, major fan yes. of Billy's. He'll probably buy five. <laughs> well, get to listen to the podcast your gigs you know everything uh, great great i actually i actually mentioned it to dennis today that we were interviewing liberty no oh, yeah he, he, he wanted me to ask a very bad question which i'm not going to ask on the air and what about you joe curry what's what's going on in your life oh you uh did you weren't you writing a screenplay yeah we i, I have a couple of things cooking i have a screenplay it's called the weight of the world and right, it's right. about a bunch of people that are trying to lose weight. Uh, we have it as a musical. Uh, we still might picture this as a musical. We're doing a web series on it. I just got to figure out how to get the freaking uh, YouTube page up. Um, and then there's another project that I'm working on that's about, uh, it's actually based on my life that uh, Davin and I are working on. Uh, and then I have my bands. I got my original band, Fragile Sky. Uh, I have uh, uh, my cover band that I play in called Funky Monks. It's a Red Hot Chili Peppers cover band with Anthony Cumier and Joe Cumier. And uh, then I have my other band called Sexy Susan, which is a compile of all uh, Jersey and New York musicians. And we're opening up for, I think, Angel in October out on the island. Angel? Of, uh, is is yeah. Drew Free still in the band? Uh, no, no, he's not. But uh, the, the other guys are. So we got to get, it's October 8th or something like that. Out Where's at, that? Uh, uh, at Re Revolution. Is it Revolution? No, it's, uh, what's the place out of? There is a place North. in Long Island called Revolution. Yeah, yeah Re so, not Revolution, it's 89, 89 North. 89 North. Is that an indoor show or an outdoor show? It's an indoor show. So you know what? It's like, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see We'll see what happens, you know? I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, it's like the clubs are, I mean, Governors, James, the owner of Governors, has really, you know, gone out of his way to get 
the three governors clubs open. I mean, they have the outside room. They, they have, do an outside. Yeah, and also they, they do an inside with all uh, social distancing. They have plexiglass all over the place. Oh, so, they're able to do an indoor show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Long Island. Long Island, not New York City. Yeah, and, and basically mm. because there are a restaurant and not a bar. So what they do is they have plexiglass in the front of the stage, um, and then they have social distancing and people have to wear masks and everything like that. And they're giving it, giving it a shot. You know, I mean, after that, there's nothing going on in comedy. I don't know about you guys. My, my last gig was March 14th. I'm supposed to be with Adam Ferrara uh, at Mohegan uh, sometime in October. We'll see if that goes. But after that, that's it. There ain't nothing. I'm looking yeah. to wrap this up because I got, I got a show tonight and I'm at QED tomorrow night. Um, I mean, it's coming back slowly. I mean, like we were talking about before about, you know, working harder and getting paid a lot less. Yeah. Uh, than before but i mean you know you got to keep the muscle moving and you got to you know you got to keep going forward and hopefully you know sooner rather than later you know things start to come back maybe plexiglass in front of the stage will bring back throwing bottles at the band again yeah now how are they doing at this club that you're working at tonight tonight i'm it's an outdoor show under a tent uh called the mason jar in uh Mawa, something like that it's in new jersey Mawa. and tomorrow tomorrow night qed that's the club that uh christian finnegan's uh life owns um they're lucky enough in some queens and they're lucky enough to have uh, a backyard like a patio mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a socially distanced uh um show but i mean in new york you know i live in new york you know in new york and there's nothing indoors and, and doesn't look like there's any hope for anything to be indoors for the rest of the year. And uh, yeah. about Jersey. Lords of 52nd Street are doing, um, in Milford, we're doing a, a, a drive-in show, one of those. Oh, we've mm -hmm. got, Sean and I just did a drive-in show uh, yeah. about a week or so ago. Yeah. Anyway, they sit in their cars and they listen to it. Like, are you guys playing it over a radio station? Or are you, you know, cause like we did it over the radio or are you guys having like, like a speakers? Well, I think they got both. Cause people yeah. like to get out. You know, uh, okay. who knows? It's it's something. Something's got to come back. People are dying for live music. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. Live entertainment, live music, live entertainment. Yeah, you know, just to hear a band. You know, in a couple of my uh, couple, like I said, in my one band, Sexy Susan, I had there's a whole bunch of musicians in that band. Um, my lead singer, she uh, plays with this band, Tuned Up. They've done a couple of shows, you know, and uh, a couple other people have been doing gig. You know, everybody's trying. Everybody's giving it a shot. You know, we'll go out. We'll do. You know. Do, do some time, do some tunes, and we'll see what happens, you know? And if, you I know, just saw Grace Potter, who's who's an amazing, amazing artist. She's playing an outdoor restaurant in the middle of down the shore, New Jersey. Where mm -hmm. would she normally play? She was just on um, Daryl's house. She would play That's PNC. She would play PNC Art Center, and she would probably sell that place out with her band. And now she's playing solo acoustic in the back of a restaurant outside wow. down the shore in Jersey. Every Great. Almost Queen, the Queen tribute band. Yeah, is playing yeah. The Great. parking lot of the Garden State Plaza Mall in Paramus. Yeah. And charging $250 a car. Yeah, they do good business. Almost Queen does well, but uh, I know the, uh, the drummer, uh, I used to play with him, John Cappadona, and mm -hmm. he took a big hit. I mean, he took a major hit in money because he lost all their gigs. They started to get their, you know, their feet wet again. So, yeah, you know, I mean, they, they did an outdoor gig, I think, on the island a couple of weeks ago they're doing this so yeah you know i mean you got to try that that's their livelihood man yeah, we, only two, we only got two months where they're playing again so you know in case you know we, we have uh, listeners in new jersey in case they want to go see them where garden are they playing the garden state plaza parking lot the biggest mall in new jersey they're playing the parking lot of the mall mm. 
Crazy. Amazing. Before we wrap this up, I got two things I want to say. Everybody always asks me what my favorite joke is from a comic. And I never give a big name. I never say Chris Rock or anything like that. I always say two jokes. The first one, and Joe knows who this person is, is a great guy who passed away. His name is Vince D'Antona. Mm. And one of the, and he was a ventriloquist. And one of the jokes was he would say uh, he'd had the, the, the puppet on his lap and the puppet's name was George. So he would go, George would say, Vince, I have a problem. What was the problem? I had to go to the doctor today. What's the matter? Every time I sneeze, I have an orgasm. Oh, yeah? What do you take? Pepper. <laughs> and that's one. Makes me laugh every time. The second one I always quote is a quote is a joke of Joe Curry's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it really is. I'm not kidding. Because I've worked with you a bunch of times. Right. And the joke is, you ever see that commercial where you're buying the engagement ring and it says every every kiss begins with K? Yeah, well, it better end with BJ. Yeah. And I laugh my balls off every time I hear that, so, that joke. So I want to just give you credit for that. I also want to give a shout out to my uh, a good friend of the show, Mike Massiello, for helping getting us uh, liberty on the show today. And uh, I think this is a great interview. I'm glad you guys, I hope you guys had fun. I had what a great you, time and it was so nice to meet Liberty. It really was an honor. It's great to be with you guys too. I just want to know, Sean, what's that, what did your friend want you to ask me? Oh, it's- Ask it, come on. Come on. All right, I gotta, I gotta look at it really quick. Hold on. It's something about a girl well, named Maureen. While we're waiting for Sean, just to let everybody know, uh, next week we have coming up on the show is uh, Bobby Collins. Yes. Oh, great. Bobby Love Bobby. It's, a, yeah, it's about we... a woman named Maureen Smith. Do you know who Maureen Smith is? I do. Okay. That's all I need. That's, I, I had to just drop the name. And I, Are I'm you not happy, Dennis? It. Stupid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. Uh, everybody, go on Amazon. Get Liberty's book. Uh, I am actually going to order it tomorrow because I get paid tomorrow. So I'm going to order that tomorrow, and we're going to check it out. And uh, thank you guys for being on the show. Thank Another you great for episode. having us, man. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate it. We appreciate it, guys. Thank you right. so much. Thank you. Right. Thanks, guys. Be well, everybody. Take care, yeah. man. Be good.